It's good to be with you again this morning. Um, Pete is finishing up a road trip to California. So if we didn't meet last week, I'm Nick. I'm a new pastor here on staff. And um, my wife and I have been enjoying getting to know the church. And we've been really blessed by the welcome you've given us. So I want to say thank you for that. And uh, thank you for your uh, kindness towards us and your grace and everything. So... Today is Palm Sunday, and we're going to go ahead and get into the Word. If you have your Bibles today, we're going to be in John chapter 12, so you can turn there, and as we do that, let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you with humble hearts, Lord, and uh, as we turn to your Word, we ask that you would do work in us this morning. We ask that you would work in our hearts by your Spirit, and Lord, give us an openness and give us soft hearts that are willing to hear and receive from you. Lord, we pray that you give us repentant hearts, and we pray that you give us hearts that are submitted to you, Lord, and we pray that in all of our plans and expectations, Lord, help us to be submitted to you. Lord, let us not be those who, who say Hosanna on Palm Sunday, but on Good Friday, only a few days later, are already saying, crucify him, Lord. We pray that you would do a work in our hearts, that we would be submitted to you, Lord, with full trust in your sovereignty and in your goodness and in your, your character. So, Lord, we just give you permission today to work in our hearts, and we ask that you would do it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. So, Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the first day of Holy Week, which is the week leading up to Easter. Now, during Holy Week, we remember the week that Jesus spent in Jerusalem, during which he was crucified, and then on the third day, on Sunday, he rose from the dead. Now, this is a very significant week. In fact, I believe we could easily say that this was the most significant week of Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, In the four Gospels, more attention is given, more time is devoted to this one week of Jesus' life and ministry than to any other period. There were a lot of important things that took place during this week. For example, the cleansing of the temple happened right after the triumphant entry. Jesus' prophecies about the destruction of Jerusalem and the end times. These happened during this week in Jerusalem, the Holy Week. Then the Last Supper, of course, and Jesus' betrayal, Jesus' crucifixion, and of course, his resurrection. This was an actual week that Jesus spent in Jerusalem. And it is, in fact, one of the most documented parts of his life because of how incredibly significant it was. So today I would like to look at uh, the events of Palm Sunday through John's Gospel in chapter 12. And I would like to talk a little bit about this day, about its significance, and of course what it means to you and I practically as we seek to follow Jesus here and now in 2012. So let's check out John chapter 12, verse 1. It begins like this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So Jesus comes to this town called Bethany. Now, Passover began on Friday, so that means likely Jesus arrived in Bethany either on Friday night or Saturday. Uh, You know, Passover, as I said, begins on uh, sundown on Friday. So Bethany, really, it's a a small town outside of Jerusalem. It'd be like if you were uh, walking to Longmont from Niwot or Firestone or, or Lyons. So as you may know, 
most of Jesus' ministry was done in the north of Israel, near the Sea of Galilee. And it was only uh, occasionally that he would come down to Jerusalem. Most of his ministry was done up north. And we read that people from Jerusalem, they heard about Jesus, and they would travel up north to go and meet him and to hear him speak. But there's a very important uh, story that we read in all four of the Gospels because it was a great turning point in Jesus' ministry. In the beginning of Jesus' ministry, as you may know, as you may have read, you know, he traveled around, he preached, and he taught about the kingdom of God, and he performed miracles, and he healed the sick. But there came a turning point in Jesus' ministry where his focus shifted from doing those things to fulfilling that one ultimate purpose for which he had come. Maybe you know the story. Jesus was talking with his disciples at one point, and he asked them, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him. They said, Some say that you are John the Baptist. Others say that you are Elijah or one of the prophets. But he asked them, But who do you say that I am? What an important question, right? What a significant question. Who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And it says there in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And from this point on, After that point, in each of the Gospels, the focus of Jesus' ministry begins to be this great final trip that he is making to Jerusalem. Jesus has proven himself to be the Messiah by his actions. He has revealed to people the kingdom of God. He has taught them the way of the Lord. But now his focus turns to that one thing which only he could do, which only he was capable of doing. Dying in our place as a perfect sacrifice. God himself, the judge himself, coming, taking our punishment upon himself so that we could be forgiven and so that we could be reconciled to God. You know, a lot of good people have lived through history. A lot of people who have lived, who taught peace. They taught us to get along with our neighbors. And they taught us wisdom even. And they have fed the hungry and even cared for the sick. But Jesus was more than than just another good man, just another wise teacher. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. The one who came to die sacrificially so we could have life everlasting. So here's Jesus at the end of this long journey, which of course he's taken by foot with his disciples from Galilee to Jerusalem. That's about a hundred miles. I can't even walk like five miles without like falling down and calling an ambulance, you know. They called, they walked a hundred miles. And it wasn't just once. They arrive in Bethany, just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. The next day will be Palm Sunday, the day when Jesus will enter the city of Jerusalem, declaring himself to be the Messiah, the King of the Jews, the Redeemer, whom God promised even from the time of Adam and Eve when they fell into sin. So you can really see how significant this one week of Jesus' ministry was when you consider that the Gospels, like I said, they spend more time telling this story of what happened during this one week of Jesus' life than the story of any other time of his life. 
And uh, some rough calculations for you guys who like numbers and percentages. About 25% of Matthew's gospel is dedicated to just this one week of Jesus' life. That's a quarter of the gospel of Matthew. 30% of Mark's gospel. 20% of Luke's gospel. And almost 50% of John's gospel dedicated to telling the story of what happened during this one amazing, significant week of Jesus' life. So what does that tell us about Jesus' life and ministry? That indeed, he was a good man who did good things, but more important than that, the most important, most significant thing he did, the very reason for which he came, was to die on a cross in our place to reconcile us to God by taking our sin upon himself to defeat sin and the devil by rising from the dead on the third day. So let's read about what happened from verse 2. We read, they came, uh, So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to keep, or he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Such an interesting story, right? You know, sometimes we take these stories for granted, but think about this. If someone would just uh, come into your house or, you know, you have them over for dinner, and, uh, and then they just get out like this pound of, I mean, that's a lot. That's like a significant amount. And just like dump it on you, right? Just like... You know, hey, I'm glad you came, and uh, now I'm going to dump this stuff all over you. And then I'm going to wipe it with my hair, okay? That'd be weird if I did that. I don't have very long hair. Hopefully Mary had longer hair, you know. It's more like uh, something she could use to wipe. But I mean, really, think about this. If you go in to see, like, some, the mayor, right? <laughs> like, mayor, nice to meet you. I just want to show you how much I care about you. And you dump some perfume on his head and then wipe it up with your hair. Now, that is very strange, right? Uh, that's even maybe a bit gross to our, our modern minds. But back in the day, this was a very significant and meaningful action. You see, Mary understood what Jesus had been saying. What the disciples, you know, they'd been hearing it, but it was almost like they didn't want to hear it, right? They didn't want to hear what Jesus was saying, that he's going, he's going to die. They didn't want to hear that. So they would kind of, oh, okay. He, maybe he means something else by that. But Mary understood that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem for the purpose of dying. And in that day, they, when they buried a body, they would cover it in these fragrant ointments. And Mary chose to pour her ointment on Jesus while he was still alive as an expression of how much she loved him. See, we can assume that Mary was a single lady uh, because she lived with her sister and her brother and not with her husband. Now, back in those days, if you wanted to get married, as you probably know, you had to pay a dowry, an expensive dowry. And, uh, and since they didn't have banks, the way that people kept their wealth was by buying things which would hold their value. 
precious stones, gold, or perfumes and ointments like this. So we read here this perfume would have cost about 300 denarii. Now that's about a year's wage. So you can imagine if we're talking in today's term, we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars in today's value. So this woman takes this perfume, which is the equivalent of her life savings, essentially, and she just pours it out on Jesus' feet. Now, can you imagine that? Can you imagine if you did that? You just take like $20,000, your whole life savings, and you just pour it out on Jesus' feet. All your money in the world, right? Your dowry. How is this woman going to get married? No decent or noble man would marry a woman who could not give a dowry. So by doing this, essentially, and see this, she is giving up all of her security, all of her opportunities, just so she could do this one nice thing for Jesus. And when you think about it this way, you can almost understand why this guy was upset that she just poured thousands of dollars on the ground and it's gone. It's just on the floor, just like that. And she can't get it back. But there's something we need to see here. And this is what Jesus saw here. That this was an act of worship. This was an expression of love and devotion. By doing this thing, she was expressing to Jesus that he was more precious to her than anything else in the world. And Jesus did not see a waste in this action. He was blessed by it. It was precious to his heart. And, and here's, the, here's the deal. Any act of worship is by nature an act of sacrifice. You sacrifice time, money, relationships, energy for the things which you love. The fact is that the things you love the most are the things that you will sacrifice the most for. There's no such thing as worship without sacrifice in some form. If you really love something, though, you have to say this, that making sacrifices for it is something which you love to do. It's something which actually brings you joy, not something that you do begrudgingly because you have to, because you hate it, but you got to do it. And other people who don't love that thing the way that you do, they will look at that sacrifice and it won't make any sense to them. They will think it's a waste. Some people are really into cars, right? Um, they really love their cars. They'll like save up their money, even for years, to buy awesome parts for their cars. And other people will look at that and they'll say, what a waste. It's a, it's a stupid car. Why don't you just save yourself some money and take the bus, you know? Uh, other people, when they're in love, they will spend money on gifts and dinner and doing things for the other person. And that other person doesn't need that, you know, steak dinner. <laughs> they don't need those things. In fact, probably in many cases, they don't even expect those things. And they really, you know, that person really could spend their money in other ways, but why do they do it? Why? Because they find joy in sacrificing for that person. So that sacrifice, when they do it, they don't think, man, what a sacrifice. They think, what a joy. And the question for us is, what or whom do we love the most? The greatest commandment, you know, in God's word, you remember it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. 
And Jesus, he said, seek first the kingdom of heaven. And what this means is that we should love God more than we love anything or anyone else in our lives. And like I said before, if you really love someone or something, making sacrifices for them is something which you love. It's something which brings you joy. You know, David Livingstone, uh, he was one of the first missionaries to go into the heart of Africa, into the center of Africa, to preach the Lord Jesus. He was an educated man from England. And he went to Africa and he spent his entire life there, essentially. And, and on one of his trips back to England, he was invited to speak at Cambridge University about his experiences in Africa. And, you know, during a question and answer time, one of the students asked the question. They said, how were you able to make such a great sacrifice by spending so much of your life in Africa? And uh, David Livingston's response was, for me, to serve the Lord in Africa was a privilege, not a sacrifice. All the difficulties I have suffered are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. And he said, I have never made a sacrifice. Other people looked at David Livingston's life and said, what a waste. What a waste of a life for a wealthy, educated man to go spend his entire life in Africa. What a waste. Why not stay in England where you have a comfortable life making a, a lot of money? Instead, go to Africa, suffer disease and hunger. What a waste. But for David Livingston, that was pure joy. Because it was an act of worship. To follow the Lord's leading, to go to Africa, was an expression of his devotion to the Lord and his love for the Lord. And so, he never thought of it as a sacrifice. He thought of it as a joy. And that's the point about love, is that when you love something, sacrificing for it is the most natural thing. It's something you do without thinking about it because it's what gives you the most joy. To express that love and devotion by doing something. In fact, uh, that's what we read in, about Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says that it was because of the joy which was set before him that Jesus went to the cross. Now for Jesus, of course it was a sacrifice, to give up his love. It was the greatest sacrifice to bear our sins and our shame. But at the same time, God's word says that for him, it was joy because he loved us. Speaking of sacrifice, God's word says in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, it says, it, God's word says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You know, God's primary desire isn't that we would just make sacrifices for him. His primary desire is that we would love him and know him. And Mary didn't pour out this anointment on Jesus' feet because she thought she had to. She did it as an act of worship, an expression of love and devotion. And some people, as we see, they looked at this act of worship, her sacrifice, and they said, what a waste. And in the same way, there will be people who look at your acts of worship and your sacrifices, which you do with joy, and they will say, well, that's, that's too much. That's a waste. How could you give your hard-earned money to the church? What a waste. How could you spend all your time with that church? What a waste. You spend your time and money to go on trips to serve poor people. What a waste. But let me tell you this. God sees that. He sees your heart. He sees uh, your act of worship, and he delights in it. 
Just like he delighted in, in Mary's act of worship, your expression of love to him. Worship is never a waste in the Lord's eyes, but it's something he very much treasures and delights in. Let's continue reading from verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So Jesus, the next morning, Sunday morning, the first day of the week, he rides into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. And by doing this, he declared himself to be the Messiah. Because this was a fulfillment of a prophecy about the Messiah in the Old Testament, that he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, in that time, in that culture, a practice was that if a king was coming into a city to declare war, he would, he would come in riding on a horse. But if a king was coming in peace, then he would come on a donkey. Jesus was announcing himself to the city of Jerusalem. That he's here. He is the Prince of Peace. He has arrived. And the people received him. We see that they did. They received him as King and Messiah. But here's the thing, and it was interesting that Jeff tied this in this morning because this is uh, what the Lord put on my heart to share as well, is this. Think about it. In just one week's time, these same crowds who were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, same people, same crowds are going to be shouting, crucify him. Why? Well, here's why. Because they had expectations about what Jesus would do and when he would do them. They expected him to come in as the king of the Jews and to drive out the Romans and reestablish the throne of David. But during Jesus' week in Jerusalem, he did not do those things. He did not meet those expectations. In fact, he did something which no one expected him to do at all. Uh, which actually caused the people to turn against him. During his week in Jerusalem, after coming in in that triumphant entry, which we read about here, Jesus then made a beeline for the temple. He just went straight to the temple. And what did he do? He, turned, he started flipping over tables and yelling at people. And he told them to get out of there. And he said, you've taken my father's house, which should be a house of prayer for all the nations. And you've turned it into a den of thieves. Instead of affirming the Jewish people, he actually told them that they needed to repent of their sins. Now, they were not expecting that. Uh, it was this event that made people realize that Jesus had not come to Jerusalem to drive out the Romans, to reestablish the earthly kingdom as they had expected him to do. So their expectation was not actually a bad expectation. Because God's word does say that the Messiah will establish a kingdom and reign on the throne of David. But these people were disappointed because Jesus didn't do things in the way they expected him to and in the timing they expected him to do it in. And as a result, these crowds who were singing Hosanna on Palm Sunday are the same ones shouting crucify him a few days later on Good Friday. And I think we need to ask ourselves as well, are we ever like that? Do we ever do that? Do we love the Lord and sing his praises as long as he meets our expectations? 
But if God doesn't do what we expect or maybe even what we ask him to do for us in the time frame that we expected it to happen, well then what? Having expectations in regard to God, that's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, expectation is an essential element of faith, of real and living faith. If you honestly believe that something is true, then that is going to affect your actions. You will expect it to happen. Hebrews chapter 1 or chapter 11 verse 1, God's word gives us a definition of faith. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So essentially that means that expectation is an essential element of faith. But oftentimes, as you probably know, what causes problems in our relationship with God is when those expectations are either number 1 not biblical expectations, but perhaps fleshly, or two, when our expectations are not submitted to his will and authority. You can expect certain things. You can expect that God has a good plan for your life, that he will keep his promises in his word. But the point where expectations can be a bad thing is when we expect God to do things in our timing, in the exact way that we want them. Because if you are a child of God, then you have that promise from God that he is working all things for your good and for his glory. But that doesn't mean he's going to make it happen in the way and in the time that you expect it. And I think this is a great problem for a lot of people in how they view God. They have a lot of expectations, some of which are biblical and some of which are fleshly. And, and some of those expectations are not submitted to his will. And when God doesn't meet their expectations, well, they get upset and they get mad at him and sometimes embittered. Uh, And they become like these people who said, Hosanna on Palm Sunday and crucify him a few days later on Good Friday. I'm sure that all of us in here know that it's impossible to meet everyone's expectations. You know that because you go to work, you have expectations in your workplace, in your family, uh, etc., People have things they want you to do and they want you to do them in a certain time frame. And I think we generally want to meet those expectations because we don't like to disappoint people by nature. But I think we realize that it's impossible to please everyone all the time. And sometimes we have to make choices as to which things are more important and who we have to say no to and thereby disappoint. Who do we have to disappoint? It's unavoidable that we have to disappoint some people. Jesus said in John 6, he says that the reason that he came was to do the will of his Father. That means that Jesus did not come to meet my expectations. Uh, His goal was to please his heavenly Father, not to please me, right? To do the will of the Father and accomplish his Father's plans. And because of that, By nature of this, some people were disappointed with him. Some people are disappointed with him. But it wasn't because Jesus did something wrong. It was because they expected him to do what they wanted him to do, not what he came to do. He did not come, sorry, let me put this this way. He did come to serve mankind and to become a servant of all, but not to submit himself to the demands of men. He came to serve mankind in the way that God had appointed according to God's plan, not just however people expected him to. 
And what this means for you and I practically is that instead of expecting Jesus to submit to our plans and do our thing, our program, we need to adjust our expectations, bring them into submission, into sync with the program of the Father, the plan of God. You know, um, over the years as a pastor in Hungary, I heard people, even people in the church, they would sometimes say, you know, God doesn't love me. God doesn't love me at all. And you'd ask them, you know, well, why would you say that? That's a crazy thing to say. They say, oh, he doesn't, he doesn't ever do anything for me. And you say, well, that's not really true now, is it? You know, in fact, he does many amazing things for you every day. Blessings and food on your table and a roof over your head and people who care about you and abundance of material possessions. Not to mention the fact that he loves you and he proved it by dying on the cross so that you could have eternal life. And you say, yeah, well, still, God doesn't love me, you know? And obviously it's not true that God does not love that person. He, he shows us amazing amounts of love and grace day by day. The real issue is usually that God didn't meet that person's expectations. Uh, I have a good friend in Hungary. And when I first met the guy, he was, a, he was a strong Christian. In fact, he was serving in the church where I was serving. And uh, after I had known him for a few years, there came a point where he got very bitter against the Lord. And uh, I would say about this man that he is still a believer. He still believes. He still has faith. But he is not walking with the Lord. He hasn't read his Bible in years. He hasn't gone to church. And I talked with him and I asked him, you know, what changed and uh, I felt like we finally got to the root issue. And that was that he became a Christian when he did with certain expectations. That if he did, certain areas of his life would get better. Certain things in his life would change. And after being a f Christian for a few years, these things which he had expected to happen, they still hadn't happened. And he became very disappointed in Christianity and very disappointed in God by his own admission. But you know, I know this guy, and knowing this situation, I can say that I am sure that his disappointment is not because God failed. Not because God promised him that he would do something and then didn't do it. The issue is that he expected it to happen within a certain time period. And when it didn't happen, he got very upset. And there are people who, when they get upset with God, you know, they'll give him ultimatums. Have you ever encountered that? You know, God, if you don't do this, then I'm finished with you, you know? If you don't meet my expectations within this time frame that I have demanded, then I'm not going to talk to you anymore, you know? You know, if you don't give me a husband or a wife by the time I'm 30, then I'm through with you, you know? If you don't help me pass this test, if you don't help me get that job, then I'm never going to church again, you know? If you don't make me happy by the end of April 2012, I'll give you till midnight, then I'm done with you. As if you only have a relationship with God so that he can give you what you want. As if you're doing him a favor by following him and worshiping him and being his child. 
As if you somehow think that God is going to hear that ultimatum and be like, whoa, whoa, just hang on a second. I didn't realize that you were that serious about this. You know, don't do anything drastic, okay? Just let me take care of that really quick before you do anything crazy. You know, giving God an ultimatum, that's a form of manipulation. And what we all need to understand about the Lord is that he does not succumb to manipulation. You know, the U.S. has this policy that they don't ever negotiate with terrorists. And I think it works in a similar way with God. If you're coming to him like a terrorist, uh, he's not going to succumb to your demands. Why? Because he's God, and by nature, he's superior. And when you send an ultimatum, what are you doing? You're trying to take control of the situation. But God will not allow you to be Lord over him. He wants to be, and of course, he deserves to be Lord over you. The one who gives directions, not the one who takes them. And his objective is to work out his plan. Not to meet all of our demands and expectations. And what I'd like you to see too in this is that when you look at this Holy Week story, we now, 2,000 years later, we can look back and see the full picture. And as we see the full picture, what we see is that God's plan for what Jesus would do as the Messiah, as he entered Jerusalem, Although it wasn't what the people had expected, it was in fact and truly much better than what the people had hoped for and expected. God's plan that Jesus would die on the cross rather than drive out the Romans, that wasn't what the people had wanted, but it was better. He knew what the true need was. He knew what the greater plan was. These people just didn't know that yet. They didn't know what we know looking back. And, and looking back, we can clearly see that God's plan was way better than what, than what they wanted Jesus to do for them. They couldn't see that at the moment. All they could see in that moment was disappointment. Because Jesus didn't do what they hoped that he would do in the f- time frame they had expected. And I would say that that is sometimes true in our lives as well. An essential element of faith is being able to say, Well, Lord... I kind of hoped that, and I kind of prayed that things would work out in a certain way. But I know that you are working out everything for my ultimate good and for your ultimate glory. So I choose to trust that your plan is better than my expectation. And I pray that we would not be like these people who shouted Hosanna on Palm Sunday, but a few days later on Good Friday shouted, crucify him. But that by being submitted, by submitting our expectations and hope to his sovereignty, that we would be able to offer up that offering of praise continually and say, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord by faith in all circumstances and situations. So my challenge for you today is to ask yourself, what kind of expectations do I have in regard to God. And I would encourage you to let go of your demands, let go of your ultimatums, and just submit your expectations to God. You know, prayer is never a checklist of things that God must do for you. It is a, it's a way of making requests and a way of being in fellowship with the Lord. And it is a good thing to have expectation and faith. That's an essential element of real faith. But we need to submit our expectation to God's will and God's plan. Knowing that His plan 
is a good plan for your good and for his glory. Let's uh, finish up with these last three verses. Verse 23. Jesus answered them and he said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, or sorry, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You know, the Lord doesn't always tell us why he does the things in the way that he does them. He calls us, rather, to follow him and trust in his sovereignty and his goodness. So let us be those who serve him. Let us be those who follow him. Because indeed, following him and serving him is the most fruitful and the most joyful way to live. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you again with humble hearts, Lord, knowing that your plan for your life, for our lives, is always for our good and always for your ultimate glory. And we thank you for your promises in your word, Lord, that they are sure, that they are true. Lord, I pray that you would help us to continually give that offering of praise, to continually say, Hosanna. Blessed is the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, thank you that you are our true king. Lord, thank you that your plans are often greater than our expectations. So Lord Jesus, we just want to thank you for your grace. We want to thank you for your sovereignty. We want to thank you for your goodness. And we give you praise and we ask that you would bless this week that's coming up and keep those events of Holy Week in our mind. In Jesus' name, amen.